You're listening to the Heal Better Fast podcast, dedicated to bridging the gap between alternative healthcare and mainstream medicine in utilizing everything good to help you feel great. We're glad you tuned in. Now here's your host, Dr. Michael Pound. Our guest today is Dr. Chris Friesen, who's director of Friesen Sport and Performance Psychology. He's a professional member of the Canadian Sports Psychology Association, and he's all about leveraging the science of sports and performance psychology and cognitive neuroscience to maximize personal and professional potential. In our interview today, we talk about healing a common injury that I see among youth in contact sports today in clinic. So help me welcome Dr. Chris Friesen. Good morning, Chris. Welcome to the show. I'm happy to have you on today. Pleasure to be here. I am really looking forward to this episode because it's on a topic that comes up a lot in in my clinical practice, and it's one that I necessarily don't have a lot of answers for. So I decided to bring on an expert in it, and that topic is concussions and TBI, or traumatic brain injury. So I'm really excited to kind of delve in that. But before we get to that, Chris, why don't you tell me how you got into this profession? Yeah, I got into this profession. So I'm a licensed psychologist, neuropsychologist as well. It's sort of a subspecialty of clinical psychology um, that specializes in the brain and uh, the brain and behavior connection. I uh, was an athlete growing up, um, uh, played goalie, uh, hockey, uh, loved sports. And um, I originally actually was considering going into chiropractic or medical school until I took a psychology course and fell in love with it. Um, long story short, I uh, did really well in graduate school, and um, I really tried to get as broad uh, experiences as I could as, as, as I could in terms of working with different populations. So I've worked in prison populations and obviously TBI populations, Alzheimer's, like in a geriatric hospital. Um, of course, anxiety and depression, athletes, executives, etc. Uh, when I was training, I was really trying to make sure I got. Um, uh, as, as broad experiences as I could get. And I really fell in love um, with neuropsychology, uh, the sub-branch of clinical psychology, um, where the focus is mostly on assessing individuals with cognitive dysfunction and, and, and documenting that and providing recommendations. One of my not pet peeves, but one of my disappointments was that there was so little offered uh, or taught in terms of how to help people who had some form of neurological compromise. Um, it was essentially medications, some behavioral modica- modifications, um, or uh, cognitive compensatory strategies for people, let's say, with memory deficits. And um, those are very useful, um, but I've I guess there's a part of me that's an optimist, and I really felt that there should be more to offer than basically assessing, telling the person, you know, this is what they can and cannot do, and this is sort of how to try and get around it as best as possible, and sort of best of luck. And this is what got me more into the uh, neuromodulation side of things uh, a little bit more recently, let's say the last five years, um, in terms of neurofeedback, biofeedback, and other things. So... um, it's sort of a roundabout way of getting here, but I, I, uh, this has sort of revolutionized and re-sparked my interest in working with uh, people with brain injuries, concussions, uh, and other forms of acquired brain injury. Uh, this idea that I have something now more to offer them. You know, it's funny how much psychology actually is used in in my practice. You know, it's a mm-hmm. lot of it is mm-hmm. trying to help people understand pain and figure out pain, and and it's kind of like a 
you know, a brain hack when it comes to dealing with chronic pain patients. But um, at the same time, you can also, if you understand how it works, I'm sure, use it to increase performance. It's funny when I have patients who come in with like a, uh, they, they lifted something and they hurt their back, you know, getting those people better, simple, you know, easy. But when I have someone come in who's in an auto accident and that, that, that traumatic brain component, man, those Mm -hmm. are the ones that just take the longest. And sometimes people get really frustrated. Frustration doesn't help everything. As we know, you know, just being frustrated about it. Sometimes you got to stop thinking in order for the brain to heal. Um, but mm-hmm. when mm-hmm. I took, when I was an undergrad, I took psychology courses. I loved them and, uh, and, and, uh, had a good time. And then I took some neuro, neuroscience classes, which I thought was fascinating, but oh man, it, it just made my brain hurt thinking about all this electricity and all the pathways. <laughs> so you have to be, man, really dialed in to, to, to do that. So, or, or have a lot of, uh, passion and motivation. I will say it's, that's a really good point you brought up. It, the, the brain and neuroscience is so complicated. Um, and I find, you know, the more I learn about the brain, the, the, the less I feel like I know. And the, the, this is something, you know, for people to, uh, beware of the more confident someone, um, like a health professional is about describing the brain and what it does. Um, that's usually a, should be a red flag that they probably don't know much <laughs> about the brain because it's not, it's, it's not so simple. Um, so it's, it is, uh, yeah, it's, it, it, it's, it's very overwhelming and I've been in this field for a long time and I still get overwhelmed and there's still things that I don't feel like I understand. And so that, that experience you had is, is, is pretty common. And there's obviously smarter people than I that uh, maybe they get everything that they, that they, that all the new stuff and, and, and that's great, but it is a, it is a difficult thing. The brain of course controls everything. Um, and, uh, you know, if we could understand our brain so easily, um, that wouldn't make much, you know, physical sense, because um, that—that's the understanding is the brain. So, right. Um, yeah. So, in, in clinical practice, I'm sure you see uh, kids with uh, brain, uh, basically concussions or some sort of mm-hmm. jarring injuries. Tell me, kind of walk me through the process when a parent brings you their child and says, "Okay, we think that this happened, and we're not sure. What do you think, and how do you handle it?" Good question. Um, I will say that I only see kids 12 years and older. Um, there's various licensing hoops and years and years you have to do to, to see different age groups. So I've I've done all the hoops for adults, adolescents, and senior citizens, and I have yet to go down to children, and I probably won't. I'm getting too old, I think. But <laughs> but yeah, so so they, the the teenagers, their their parents are bringing them in, and um, it's really interesting. You know, often. I find a good chunk of the time the people that I see never even had a concussion in the first place. So there's a lot of misunderstanding of what a concussion is. Um, and so, for example, to be diagnosed with a concussion, one of the misinf- you know, for example, family doctors that may not understand, they say, oh, you hit your head. Oh, and now you have headaches. You had a concussion. And that's actually not how it works. A concussion is diagnosed uh, based on the character of what happens at the, immediately at the time of the injury. Um, so, for example, one needs to have an alter, like minimally, if you don't lose consciousness or have a period of amnesia, which means zero memory of what happened, because um, you could still be walking around after getting hit, like a, let's say in rugby, and you look awake, but your your brain isn't forming any memory. Um, the, the, the minimum criteria, though, is to have a significant alteration of consciousness, which means that you are dazed, confused, incoherent, disoriented, uh, can't walk like 
being un, uh, uncoordinated. Um, in other words, a sign that your brain has been disturbed. Often these, you know, I'll get people who they said, oh, they're, they, they slammed down the trunk and it bumped their head or they, you know, stood up quickly and bumped their head on a shelf and they don't have these. They may have pain. So a lot of these guys actually end up having uh, these symptoms are due to a combination of things. One is not a brain injury, but often uh, a neck injury. And I often refer to chiropractors for this. Um, uh, they could have a vestibular injury, like a vestibular concussion. So that's the inner ear and it causes you know dizziness, balance issues, which technically, you know, strictly is not really, we don't consider that part of the brain. Um, and that's, uh, you know, again, physios and chiros often do vestibular retraining. Um, neuropsychologists, we don't, we don't touch that part. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the other issue often is these people come in and they're, they're, um, it's their perception that, that they are brain damaged. That's the problem. And so the concussion's a red herring. It's not the real issue. It's the, it's called iatrogenic illness. In other words, a well-meaning but misinformed health professionals telling them that they have a concussion, they should, for example, limit uh, their exposure to technology and remove them from school for weeks. Um, actually, even if you had a concussion, that's actually bad. Research is now showing that that beyond maybe a maximum of one week uh, of removal from these uh, like school and computers and that sort of thing is actually detrimental. So a lot of it's education uh, that, uh, you know, this isn't a concussion. You're obviously, there's a lot of anxiety or pain that are causing these same symptoms because post-concussive syndrome or the symptoms that can happen after a concussion are actually identical if you have, let's say you break your leg, what we call an orthopedic injury versus a real concussion. These symptoms are identical. Um, uh, of course, if you have depression or PTSD or anxiety or significant stress from school, you get the same symptoms. So it's it's they're what we call non-specific symptoms. So that's a big chunk of what you know, maybe half the people that come in. That's what I'm doing, um, realizing this wasn't concussion, and you know we need to. Good thing you're seeing me, so I'm going to tell you this is my expertise that this isn't a concussion. There's there's you know we need to focus on the real issues. Let's say neck, let's say uh, psychological uh, issues, let's say being mentally and physically out of shape because you've been removed from school for so long, uh, that kind of thing. However, the people who did have a concussion, um, the vast majority are recovered within um, basically th uh, 90 days, three months. Um, a very small percentage can continue to have symptoms, and they usually have some sort of vulnerability, either multiple concussions, um, learning disability or attention deficit, hyperactivity disorder, or ADD or ADHD, um, psychological issues like anxiety and stress, uh, maybe depression. And uh, those people can have prolonged um, uh, recoveries. So one thing I would do is we could do cognitive testing for some of them. Uh, to see how they're, they're functioning cognitively compared to someone their age. We call this neuropsychological testing. Um, we would do, um, uh, of course, uh, this getting all this information through a back, like a, a clinical interview. And uh, uh, not all the time, but we'll often do a quantitative EEG, which is um, uh, basically the same type of EEG you'd get from a neurologist or a sleep specialist, except what we're doing is instead of looking just at the raw, the raw brain waves of what the brain is doing, we're comparing that person's brain waves to uh, a normative sample of individuals of the same age to see if anything's sort of out of whack or consistent with a concussion. So that's sort of the assessment side of things. What we know is the a number of things get knocked out of whack. 
Um, one thing I would get people to do is uh, work on their circadian rhythms. So we know that uh, your eyes need to be exposed to bright light, um, preferably sunlight, within about 60 minutes of waking up in the morning for at least 10 to 30 minutes um, for your brain to basically get in touch with what the world is doing. In other words, uh, it tells your brain learns that in uh, you know 16 to 18 hours, it's time to go to sleep. And so it gets all these physiological functions going at the right time. Um, if it's winter, you know, and there's not much light, uh, I recommend getting a, a light box. So 10,000 lux, that's sort of the brightness uh, that we that, that is used for like seasonal affective disorder. Um, and I have I have these in my home and uh, just if you can't get outside. And at night, avoiding blue light uh, using, for example, blue blocking glasses. I usually recommend something called the UVEX. I think it's 1933. They're about $20 or $15 on Amazon, but they're industry uh, glasses that have to pass high standards. You don't have to buy the super expensive ones. They're a waste of money. Uh, and so they wear these within about one to two hours before going to bed so their pineal gland can release melatonin. So, you know, some basics there. Um, of course, uh, often I might recommend someone see a dietitian. Um, you know, diet can there's an inflammatory response when you have a head injury. Um, obviously, you can have more of an anti-inflammatory diet. Uh, a good person online is Dr. Andrew Weil. Um, he's a you know he's that bald guy with a big beard, and he's he's actually an integrative uh, physician, really good at what he does, and he has this um, inflammatory diet pyramid that's uh, really useful to to look at. Um, the, the other thing that can happen, there's uh, this is sort of preliminary right now. I, I, I sort of collaborate, I guess you'd say, or consult with the um, one of the NHL uh, neuropsychologists, um, and we've been talking back and forth, and he's published a, a bunch of articles on this, is there's this for people with concussions and obviously regular uh, severe or moderate TBIs, which are a different ball, you know, different beast altogether. They can have physiological hyperarousal, um, whether that usually that's in the autonomic nervous system, um, you know, sympathetic dominance and the stress response is just going. And sometimes it's because of anxiety, but I do think that there is a dysregulation and, to deal with that, there's something called heart rate variability biofeedback or HRV biofeedback, which is uh, a fancy, basically a fancy way of breathing. It's usually five seconds in, five seconds out, slow and long breaths. And research shows that this tends to um, uh, do a bunch of things, activate the vagus nerve, which is a giant nerve that goes from your brain to most of your organs that controls the relaxation response, which has a fancy name, which is the parasympathetic nervous system. It produces uh, vagal tone, which is uh, makes your vagus nerve stronger. So, in other words, it's able to. It's like a break. It, it calms you down. The goal is not to calm down necessarily while you're doing the breathing, but to build it up like an athlete would be doing cardio. Um, there's lots of research that uh, stimulating the, for example, the vagus, vagus nerve with electricity. Um, uh, these you know, surgeons like to do that. Uh, the implant uh, little batteries and electrodes into your on, into your chest on your on your vagus nerve and they stimulate this and there's a big anti-inflammatory response if you stimulate this a few times a day and this is one of the reasons why meditation has an anti-inflammatory response and it calms the autonomic nervous system but when you do hrv breathing which is five seconds in five seconds out um the it's much stronger than just regular meditation and so that is something that um I don't personally work with an NHL team, but my colleague is getting some of the players back really fast simply by doing HRV biofeedback 
which you can buy inner balance from HeartMath. Uh, it's a so maybe $120. Uh, you can use it on your phones. And it's actually really cool and very effective for a lot of things, not just concussions, but for anxiety, for sleep, uh, for pain, etc. Yeah, speaking about phones, I was I had a patient come in and mention uh, something and I wrote, wrote up an article and I started doing some research about mm. virtual reality and the treatment of chronic pain. But I also came across oh. a lot of studies that they were using it for post-traumatic stress disorder for different um, cognitive problems. And, yes. and I'm, sure that you, I'm sure you see a lot of maybe service, service people who uh, suffer these types of brain injuries. And maybe those are the more major ones you're talking about. And I'm curious, is, have you delved in that field at all? Yes. Uh, I do a lot of work with police officers. Um, and I've seen uh, veterans. So I'm up in Canada. So, but we still we still have veterans here. Not as many as you guys have down there. But uh, we we um, yeah, there can be uh, you know more severe head injuries. You know, there's, there's blast injuries now, um, which wasn't really recognized in the past. Uh, of course, there's penetrating injuries, which you know something a bullet or a piece of shrapnel will you know enter the brain through the skull, um, um, and you know, the, when people have moderate to severe brain injuries, and just, just for the audience to know some of the difference, again, this is determined not based on symptoms and impairment. That's, uh, it's based on what happens immediately after the, the impact, let's say. So, for example, someone with a uh, moderate TBI, they're going to be unconscious um, between 30 minutes and 24 hours after the injury, whereas uh, someone with a severe will be unconscious for greater than 24 hours. Um, so these people, uh, especially severe TBI, they can have permanent deficits uh, throughout their lives. People with concussions don't. Um, a lot of people think they do, but there's, the research does not support that idea. Cognitively, these people go back to normal relatively quickly. And um, you know, there's a lot of talk, you know, concussion isn't so mild. But these are people don't understand. They've never seen a severe TBI. These are people who are half their body doesn't work. You know, their large parts of their brain are destroyed. Um, and you can see that on MRI or CT scans. These are people who are, well, probably not all of them, but a lot of them will never work again. And so it is, mild TBIs are technically mild in the world of TBI. But, um, you know, if some people have multiple concussions, uh, over time, like athletes, and there's lots of debate about chronic traumatic encephalopathy, you know, which is uh, a potential neurodegenerative disease that's actually quite um, controversial, although the media doesn't seem to portray it that way um, because of just the way the research has been done thus far. Um, so having multiple head injuries uh, but, or subconcussive blows. So, for example, boxers, MMA fighters, um, hockey players to some extent, and football players especially, having s multiple blows for many years that don't lead to a concussion but you know can't be healthy for the brain. And we're just starting to really look into that um, and what that is doing to people um, – and actually, a study just came out the other day uh, looking at um, subconcussive blows uh, showing signs of CTE, I believe. I think it was in animal models. Uh, but um, um, so it's, 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 a, it's a fascinating field that, that gets complicated when you start to, to, to differentiate and look at the different uh, types of head injuries. And everyone's a little bit different, too, in terms of how they recover. There's even gene interactions like the APOE4, uh, I believe, uh, variant can make 
some people more likely to have longer um, effects or just be more susceptible to anything to do with the brain, including Alzheimer's. So it's a uh, it's it's a big Pandora's box. Yeah, it's funny that you bring that up. Is I I actually worked at a UFC clinic right out of mm. right out of school, and that's something that I could never wrap my brain around. Why? And for those of you who are listening <laughs> who don't know what the, this is, this is people who get into a ring and just beat the you know, the crap out of each other until someone <laughs> loses consciousness essentially <laughs> or gives up. And uh, I could never really wrap my brain around that, but uh, we always saw the most interesting injuries in that clinic. <laughs> you know, okay. I'm my sure. collarbone's broken, but I've got a fight tonight. I need you to be able to fix me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Lots of determination and persistence, great traits. Um, sometimes, uh, you know, <laughs> sometimes the, you can have those traits but not think too far in the future of what, what that's going to do if you get in the ring with that kind of injury uh, in terms of long-term injuries. So yeah, a lot of these guys that go into that are a little bit impulsive, a little bit aggressive, a little bit uh, – obviously, they're very tough. Um, and uh, you know, you see this now with the football players, the NFL players. Another article just came out I think yesterday or today or that uh, you know, these are football players saying – you know. For, uh, sorry, NFL players saying that kids, I don't know the age, maybe below 14 should not be involved in um, hits, um, tackle football because of the potential damage it may do. I'm not sure I, I, there's enough evidence to support that conclusion, but uh, if you want to be prudent and conservative, that's probably, uh, I wouldn't, yeah, I think that's probably a good idea not to, a child's brain is developing um, and <laughs> you don't want to mess you know, mess around with it with, you know, multiple blows to the head uh, and that sort of thing. Yeah, it, it, I don't think it would be a good thing. Now, <laughs> <laughs> so I would like to know if you have any, if maybe there's an example of, of a case that kind of sticks out in your mind that maybe you thought was a little tougher than most, but that recovered and, and kind of how they recovered. Yeah, yeah. So, um I had a patient uh, about a year ago named, we're going to call him Gary, um, and he had a uh, severe TBI. He was a f uh, uh, former high-level um, wrestler, uh, but he had, a, his, he had a severe traumatic brain injury by slipping on the ice. Like This is you know Canada in the winter. It's pretty, <laughs> pretty cold and snowy, and this person unfortunately slipped on the ice um, and was uh, struck his head on the ground, was knocked unconscious for a long time. They was airlifted to the hospital, um, categorized as a severe TBI. Um, there was some bleeding uh, through MRI. Sorry, usually they start off as CT scans. There was some bleeding in the uh, uh, frontal lobe and uh, what they call the temporal pole. So frontal lobe, sorry, is the front, like behind your forehead. Uh, temporal poles are kind of behind your uh, ears, between your ears and your um, uh, eyes. Um, these there's uh, there, in in the skull there are some sort of bony protrusions in those areas. So when the brain is rattled within its case, you know the case of the cerebral spinal fluid within a skull, it smashes around if you fall, you know, and hit your head on the ice. And so there, that makes sense. A lot often that's where the damage occurs. But there's often uh, when you get into a severe TBI, there's this axonal. So axons are the white matter, which is the the connections between all the gray matter, which is sort of the outside of the cortex. Uh, so cortex means bark. So you can think of a tree with bark. Uh, the cortex is the the outer few millimeter, uh, millimeters of the uh, brain, uh, which is called gray matter, and then the inside looks like 
kind of like spaghetti, um, really thin spaghetti, but spaghetti. And that's all the super highways between all the different areas. So that part can get sheared, you know, like torn um, when you have particular injuries. More so when you have um, an injury where your head, uh, you know, gets spun from one side. For example, think of a boxer getting caught in the jaw with, a, with like a right hook. Um, the head will spin left to right. And there's often shearing there, including in the brainstem. So this this individual was, um, um, I think he was about two years after his injury saw me, and he was uh, not doing very well. You know, pretty pretty. He wasn't working. He had significant cognitive impairment, also emotional regulation issues, because the the temporal lobes and as well as the frontal lobes uh, control and play a strong role in emotional regulation. And so that wasn't really surprising. Um, he had deficits on uh, neuropsychological testing with memory, processing speed, attention, uh, even um, what they call fluency, which is how quickly you can sort of speak, not just speak anything, but speak, uh, come up with particular words, for example. Um, and these are very common, commonly um, affected in, in, in traumatic brain injuries. We, uh, so we tested him. Um, and what we ended up doing, we did a quantitative EEG. Uh, what it found was excessive delta activity, particularly in those areas I said before, the front of the brain, the temporal poles. Um, uh, delta is – so our brain produces all the brain waves. Delta is the slowest, then it's theta, then it's alpha, then it's beta, and there's something called gamma, but we don't really touch that. Um, our brain's always producing all of these, but in particular states, they're dominant. So when we're in deep sleep – uh, not REM sleep, but deep sleep, we're producing lots of delta. If you look at the brain waves, they're very slow. Uh, it's one, to, but one to four hertz. In other words, the brain is sort of beating one to four times per second. It seems fast. It's actually really slow for the brain, and um, that uh, is usually not uh, dominant. You know, when for most people in, a, in during the day, unless we kept you up for 48 hours and you haven't slept. Uh, so this person had excessive delta, which meant a lot of his, basically this is information that's coming from his brainstem is getting all the way up to the cortex and because uh, the cortex isn't really doing what it's supposed to do. So that's usually a, a bad sign. We have excessive delta. He had some excessive theta and alpha as well. Those are both uh, what we consider slow wave activity, uh, suggesting those parts of the brain were kind of underactivated. So what we did was we, we, we did something called neurofeedback, which is brain training. Um, so what we do is you put some sensors, these are EEG sensors on the scalp and the person watches, um, their favorite YouTube videos. And, um, what happens is when their brain is doing the wrong thing, the, the screen will shrink really quickly or we can make it pause. But once their brain does something uh, that we want it to do, it expands. So it's a form of learning and the brain and the person learn relatively quickly how to make it, um, play more consistently or keep the screen big. And we did, I think with, we did 40 plus sessions twice a week. It's like going to the gym. It's a form of brain exercise. And, um, uh, we also use something called Z score training, which was to train his brain back to uh, an average person of his age. Um, so this is how we knew he had excessive Delta, for example, because it's compared to a norm a normative sample. Um, um, then we also did the heart rate variability biofeedback as well because of this idea of autonomic dysregulation or hyperactivation. And one other thing we did that's relatively new is called transcranial photobiomodulation. It's a fancy name for low uh, – yeah, as a chiropractor, you might know this, low-level light therapy. Yep, yep, we use it. 
Yes, exactly. And so you, a lot of people use that for pain. Um, and uh, we, we, this is um, a unit that actually you put it on your head and also one of the uh, um, lights goes up your nose. It's a little bit weird, but it goes up your nose because it's trying to get at your prefrontal, your orbital frontal cortex, which is like behind your eyes, the brain parts behind your eyes. Um, and uh, this has been shown to affect the mitochondria. It increases ATP production. Uh, you know, people, for example, the excessive delta, like a severe brain injury, like this very fellow Gary, the the uh, you know the brain is not functioning even at a cellular level like it should, and uh, this can sort of supercharge the brain to some extent. So we did all these in combination, and he had some significant improvements. Um, he uh, went back to work. Um, we did not do with this individual post neuropsychological testing because of financial issues, but he felt, uh, you know, subjectively, we usually do biweekly um, symptom reporting um, in terms of uh, how he's doing in terms of attention, memory, uh, self-perception of these things, uh, cognitive abilities, etc. And we saw a relatively linear improvement in these over time. And so it was, um, it was, uh, you know, they were very happy. His family is very happy. Uh, I would have liked to do more with him, but it becomes expensive to come in that many times because, uh, in a way, the more you do, you, the more uh, permanent some of these changes are. And right. so it, it was a great case, yeah. So give me an example of a couple of things, two or three things that you do on a regular basis as like neuro hacks for you, you know, to keep your everything, in, your brain in order. For myself personally? For yourself, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. So, of course, I like to practice everything, pretty much everything I preach. Um, from infrared saunas, I take almost every morning after I exercise. So, I kind of do interval training. I kind of run and then do weights, uh, you know, run, then do weights, and then walk on a high incline. Uh, this is on treadmill with my, of course, my uh, 10,000 lux light <laughs> right in front of my treadmill uh, because it's 6 a.m. and it's still dark out. And uh, then I go about 20 minutes in my infrared sauna. Uh, I actually do uh, HRV breathing. I don't have my app in there, but I, I have a couple of free apps. One's called uh, Breathe Deep, and that works on iPhones. And there's one called My Calm Beat. It's one word, M-Y-C-A-L-M-B-E-A-T. Only now works for the Androids, unfortunately, because they haven't updated it for the iPhone. Um, and it basically goes ding. It means breathe in through your nose. Dong means breathe out through your mouth. So it's a timer. So I do that in the sauna at the same time. So I'm training my vagus nerve. Um, I, so that's one thing I do that's just to get me started for the day. Um, of course, so what I actually do in the evenings, I do have actually a back issue uh, uh, with uh, some uh, protruding discs in my uh, L5. S1 area that uh, had to retire from hockey last uh, two years ago, um, and I do use uh, low-level light therapy on my on my lower back. Um, the uh, what I often end up doing is I watch, uh, sorry, I do some emails, for example, and I put on a neurofeedback device. One that's actually quite good for listeners if they're interested is called Versus. Um, it's a um, it's used, it was it's targeted towards athletes, but uh, it's the best consumer grade. Um, uh, unit available. So I will train myself. They're video games, just like they're video games. So for example, the, the balloon will go up when I'm in the right zone and it'll start to go down when I'm in the wrong zone or the airplane will lose altitude or gain altitude based on if I'm making my brain do the right thing. Uh, and so I'll usually do a couple uh, maybe five, 10 minutes of that when I'm looking at the screen and there's a setting where you can just listen to the sound. 
and I would continue to train my brain while I do email, while I uh, you know do some stuff on my laptop, and I just try and keep the sound of it's like a light bulb that makes a zzz sound. You want to keep it up or on as long as possible, and in a way, I'm getting extra brain training while I'm doing something else. Um, I use the uh, photo uh, photobiomodulation uh, for my brain. Uh, personally, I can't use it too much because I start to find that I don't need to sleep. But I definitely notice a significant uh, improvement in my athletic performance in the sense of if I'm running on a treadmill, I can keep going and going. Um, but the side effect for me, because I'm, uh, I'll am i be 42 in a few weeks, but the the uh, I think my mitochondria are doing too well and they get sort of hyper-energized and then I wake up at four in the morning and I'm okay. You know, um, I really think that photobiomodulation should be reserved primarily for people with uh, significant brain injuries or just as you get older. So maybe once you hit 50, 60, 70, I think uh, your mitochondria probably need that boost. Um, but occasionally I will use it a couple times a week. Um, uh, there's other things I do and I can go on. I do HRV, of course, uh, with the sensor as well. Um, and th- there's, there's more, uh, but I'll, I'll stop there. <laughs> well, that gives people some <laughs> actionable items and, and really a lot of good references in our interview today. If people mm-hmm. want to find out more about you, where do they go and where can they connect with you? I have two websites. One's called NiagaraNeuropsychology.com. There I have some educational um, information on neuromodulation, neurofeedback, traumatic brain injuries, things like that, attention deficit disorder. Um, I have another website called FriesenPerformance.com. That is more for people looking. um, I have a book called Achieve uh, that's on Amazon, and I talk about it there. It's a a self-help book for people just trying to uh, better themselves and achieve goals. I have a, a mailing list there and more articles about uh, confidence, about productivity, about how to deal with nerves and um, that kind of thing on the freezingperformance.com website. So most people look for that. But if you're looking more for the brain stuff, the Niagara neuropsychology, uh, like the brain injury stuff, the Niagara neuropsychology is the best place to find me. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time with us today for listeners, and I'll include links to your book and your uh, website on the blog post. Uh, Thank you for taking your time and uh, look forward to the next book coming out. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Heal Better Fast podcast at www.healbetterfast.com.